Father, in the presence of perfection, holiness, righteousness, we have no place. We, we don't belong. We know in and of ourselves that we are not righteous. We know that we are plagued with the consequences of the fall, with our own, not just the sin and depravity of mankind as a whole, but with our own sin, our own depravity of falling short of, of your perfection. And that's what makes the gospel of grace that has been worked out and accomplished and applied to us through Christ all that much more incredible and amazing. Not only do you invite us into your presence as people, as we know we don't belong, but you bring us and you cause us to sit down and then you teach us and you remind us again and again and again of our place with you not because we have earned it and not because we were good enough and not because we worked so hard, but because we are in Christ. And for the, for, the, for the believer to live specifically with the mindset of being in Christ and embracing and enjoying all of the blessings that are ours in Christ is what it is you would have for us to do. To not do so would be would to diminish the work of Christ on our behalf. And so those parts of us, Lord, that are at times we're, we're, we're leery or we're afraid or nervous of, of fully embracing the gospel of grace and the freedom that comes in being found in Christ, Lord, I pray that you would put those things to death and help us put those aside. And, when we, and we find that when we are so enamored with the grace of God given to us in Christ and the righteousness that is his, that is now ours because of his work as well, we find that we're free. Free not to live a life that abuses your grace, your goodness to us, but a life that wants to proclaim your excellencies and the goodness of the one who has loved us so well and so thoroughly and so consistently when we don't. And so, Lord, I pray today that you would help us in this way. Set us free Lord, um, to, to, in, in a direction that allows us to love you, worship you, and to show that to those who are around us. For your glory, for our good and our enjoyment, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you can open up to Romans chapter 9. Verses 30 through chapter 10, verse 4. That's where we're going to be again um, today. And, spoiler alert, next week as well. Um, we're gonna, I'm going to read the whole text again, as I did last week. Um, 9, 30 through 10, 4 but really camp out on verses 31, 32, and 33. So last week I covered one verse. Today we're going to cover three, and Lord willing. And um, as we continue to walk through this, this is, again, like my, my, my desire for us is for us to not just understand theologically what's being written, but for us practically to be able to think through, okay, what's being written? Why is it being written? And as I read it, how would God intend for me to take it, embrace it, and apply it to my own life. None of this, as I, I, I 
You've probably heard me say a hundred times, nothing that we do as we read in the scripture is just meant to exist in our minds for information's sake. The theology has to make its way down into our, our hearts, into our daily living, our thinking, um, our hoping, our dreaming, our desiring, all of that stuff. And so the question really always is, how is what I'm learning about the theology of what's being taught in the Scripture being brought into my mind, chewed on, mulled over, computed, however you want to put it, and then applied and lived out in a really practical way? And so I tried to show us last week um, how we can um, embrace the grace of God given to us, live out that grace, experience the freedom of that grace, live it out, but yet not abuse it. Um, and then what's the, our tendency on the other side of these, this, the inner legalist that we all have is how do we, um, what parts of us still like cling to that old legalistic works-based system of looking at God and then in, in, in effect, then we look at each other in that way as well. And so as we saw last week, um, God has given to the Gentiles a righteousness by grace as we will see today, what he did not give Israel is a righteousness because they sought it by works. So really the heart of the problem is this. It's a misunderstanding of the relationship between grace and the law. Um, we saw that Gentiles who pursued sin got righteousness. Legalist has a major problem with this. The legalist has a problem with God giving to someone else for free what it is that they've been working so hard for and yet still don't have. And it's because, as we see in our text, they're pursuing it based upon their own effort and work and merit. What's desired is righteousness. At the end of the day, like, that is what the goal is, is righteousness. The legalist has a problem because that righteousness, God's own righteousness, is given to those who not only were not pursuing it, they were pursuing a life of sin. And God chose to call them out of that sin and give them grace. And the legalist is over here like, dude, I'm trying really hard to be a really good person, yet I still don't have that righteousness. What's up with that? And God's answer to them is, quite frankly, you'll never get that righteousness like that. It comes by grace and by grace alone. They're pursuing it by works. Israel's pursuing the law, some form of morality. The Gentile pursues sin by God's graciousness. They get grace. The Israelite pursues the law, morality, and they get judgment. And this reflects, really, in a large way, um, how the world thinks. If I pursue good, if I pursue morality, then I should get good in return. I worked with a guy for years when I was in sales, and I mean, he was unapologetic to me. He was like, look, the primary reason why I'm nice and I do good and I bend over backwards for my customers is I believe that if I do, good will come back to me. Like, really zero interest or real care about the actual person. It was really just like this reciprocal thing. I'm going to do good so that I get good, and we would call that karma, right? So what this reveals to me is a couple things. Number one, 
There is a moral law that is universally written on the heart of all of mankind. I mean, this is part of the reason why every single religious system is a works-based system, other than Christianity, which is based upon God's grace. There's something within every single person that says, I gotta work, I gotta try, I gotta do, I gotta merit in order to get favor with God. There is a moral law that's universally written on the heart of mankind. Everyone thinks, secondly, everyone thinks their version of morality is the right version. And it's usually some version that they find is attainable on their own. And that's why we have so many different versions. Because my version of morality that I can attain is one version, but someone else's version, maybe higher, maybe lower, is their version, it's something that they think they can attain. Well, what happens when your version of morality and my version of morality, I'm gonna do this good in order to get good, they don't agree, they clash. Well, what are we gonna do? I'm gonna build my system, you can have your system. At the end of the day, we're all streaming towards the same God anyways, you're just working it your way, you're working it your way. That's just a product of this moral law being written upon everybody's heart. And so everyone's establishing some, some form of morality that they think if they do it, it'll garner favor with God. Which thirdly leads me to the conclusion that everybody is a legalist at heart. Everyone has, because we have this moral law, we're legalistic in thinking that I can attain favor with God through effort and achieving that own that, that, that law, that moral code, whatever they may, that may be. My concern is that even as a believer, we know that that's not the case. That the standard is perfection. I can't reach that. Christ has on my behalf. And I get all of the benefits of his work credited to me by faith and by faith alone, by God's gracious nature and disposition to give it to me. My concern is that the old thread of legalism continues to, in what ways does it continue to live on in my life as a believer? And how does it stain my view of God in other words, as a Christian and one who knows that I've been saved by grace through faith, how do I still tend to view God in the legalistic way? And then because of that, in what ways does that infect my relationship with those who are around me? And I then treat them in a likewise manner. So the antidote is really to see God. Go, let's go back to seeing God as he presents himself to us in Scripture as this God of grace that is for us, Christ clothed in the grace of the gospel for me so that then I might embrace that and then apply it and live it out so others might see that and know that as well. So um, we're going to read Romans chapter 9 verse 30 through chapter 10, verse 4, and then I want to draw our attention to a few things specifically as we see them in 31, 32, and 33. So what shall we say then, right? So he's, this is kind of a summary of a lot of what it is that he's already taught in Romans 9. Okay, what's the conclusion? What, what shall we say then? This is the conclusion. This is what we talked about last week. That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. 
That is a righteousness that is by faith. And then here's the contrast, what we'll see today. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Verse 30 and 31 set the contrast to each other. The legalist cannot stand. Verse 30, with the grace that they've been working so hard to get, the righteousness that they've been working so hard to get, is just simply given away to others. Well, they're over here working really hard to get it. And 30 and 31 set a contrast to each other, and 30 and 32 and 33 really help us diagnose the problem, and it's their understanding and view of Christ himself. The Lord Jesus Christ plays a major problem in the life of the legalist. They're pursuing righteousness. This is what they want. They want righteousness. And they go about it on their own effort, their own work, their own merit. They come across Jesus Christ in the grace of God clothed in the Gospels, presenting righteousness as a gift. And they can't stand it. And they stumble over him and continue on in their own path. This is obviously a major problem for those who don't know Christ, but can continue to play a problem in the life of the believer as well. As we look at verse 31, we see Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness. So you have to believe that the law of God, as he talks about it here, specifically the Mosaic law, if kept, would lead to righteousness. If, if we don't think that law-keeping could actually lead to righteousness, then what Christ has done is of really no value to us at all because it's, it's in his law-keeping that his righteousness is continued to be maintained and perfected in a, in a way. And, and it's that righteousness, it's the law-keeping righteousness which is actually given to us. So the standard of perfection was there, and the, and the gift of righteousness was held out to those who could keep the law. I mean, you think about, we covered this in chapter 2, verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So we have to maintain, we have to hold out the fact that righteousness is attainable, through the law. It's just that the problem is, is that it's not attainable by any of us. That's how Romans 3.20 
and 2.13 can coexist together. How can he say, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified, and then say in 3.20, for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. He seems to, in one sense, say, do the law and be righteous, and then a chapter later say, but you can't do the law, so you can't be righteous. And the way that these two things coexist is that they are both true. One really talks about and points us to the work of Christ in him keeping the law and attaining that righteousness, and then the other one revealing to us that it's just not possible on our part to keep that law. We need someone. We need a mediator who's going to keep it and do it on our behalf, and that's exactly what Christ does. I mean, the whole, the whole letter of Romans, as Derek said, like in my conversation with this, with this person, I'm, the, why the redundancy? Why the redundancy? Why do we continue to be pointed to the righteousness that God demands from us that we don't have, but that Christ has worked out and freely given? One, it takes you low and it humbles you. Keeps us in our proper place. Kills Legalism. You talk about not wanting to chop something off at the top, but uproot it. The work of Christ and the gospel of grace, that gets to the root of the problem. It humbles us. It keeps us absolutely dependent upon God. And it keeps us worshipful and thankful of what it is that we actually have in Christ. And, and then it, and it frees us to love him and to love others and to embrace what it is that he's given to us. This is exactly what Derek read this morning in Roman, or excuse me, in Matthew 5:17, when Jesus said, "I did not come to abolish the law. I'm not doing away with it. I'm not doing away with God's standard of perfection. I'm not lowering the bar. I'm not making it attainable." I'm not allowing you guys to make you over here make your own system of morality and you make your own system of morality by which you can then achieve it. I'm not doing any of that. I'm upholding it. But I'm doing something better than changing it. I'm keeping it. I'm fulfilling it. And do you know who gets the gift and the benefit of fulfilling it? Me fulfilling the law? Those who come to me by faith. You get it all. I'm not changing it one bit, not one iota, not one little scribal mark. It's going to be removed or changed. I'm going to keep it in full. And when I keep it and you come to me in my faith, it's all yours. It's all yours. But Israel, they pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law, as he says in our text. Not that they didn't that not that they didn't succeed in actually like possessing the law because they had the law they didn't succeed in two in two ways one they didn't succeed in obtaining the righteousness that came through law keeping because they couldn't and secondly they didn't succeed in understanding the function of the law as well which Paul has already explained to us in several places throughout the book of Romans. Righteousness being the goal, they didn't see that. They didn't understand um, the law's place in that. And 
um, showing them that God's standard of perfection was in place and that they couldn't reach it. The righteousness could not be theirs through law-keeping. And because of that, they also didn't understand what the purpose of the law was. You, we, you go back and you read, well, I already read one of the passages, Romans chapter 3, verse 20. What, as we look at some of the ways that the, law, that the law was intended to function, which they missed, they didn't succeed in reaching the function of the, and understanding of what the law was. Romans 3.20, through the law comes knowledge of sin. They didn't succeed in understanding that the law was meant to point their sin out to them. Romans chapter 5, verse 20, the law, now the law came to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. They didn't understand, they didn't succeed in understanding that the law came to, um, to increase, to excite their sinfulness. It revealed to them their sin. It excited their sin. And then they failed to understand what we saw in Romans chapter 7, verse 7. A function of the law. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. And so they didn't succeed in actually obtaining righteousness from the law, and they didn't even succeed in understanding what the function and the purpose of the law was in the first place. Why? Well, I mean, quite frankly, the only way to understand that being the function of the law comes after you've already seen and come to know Christ. This is like a retrospective look upon the law. Paul at one time himself too looked at the law and said, I'm going to do it. I'm getting after it. And he tried and tried and tried. And it wasn't after until he came to know Christ where then he looks back upon the law and goes, oh my goodness, I see what it was doing. It was revealing to me the standard of righteousness which was unattainable in the first place. It's like the law was like the carrot at the end of the stick. And, and, and it didn't matter how fast I ran and it didn't matter how slow I crawled. It always remained out of reach, completely unattainable, yet still so desirous. I still wanted it so bad. And so he can, you can't really understand what the function of the law is until you come to know Christ. You're no longer stumbling over the stumbling stone. And he tells us in verse 32... Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. They didn't succeed. Not only did they not get righteousness, they didn't even understand the function of the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Verse 33, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. To pursue the law by works, the correlation here in 32 and 33 is this. To pursue the law by works is to stumble over Christ. Which means that to pursue the law by faith would be to embrace Christ. There's, there's no way that one can begin to see the law and pursue the law by faith, really apart from having eyes for Christ. 
It's for the stumbling stone to no longer be a stone of stumbling, but for to be a stone of, of embracing, a stone of life, a, a rock of which to build one's life upon. They, pers- they did not pursue the law by faith, but as if it were based upon works. So what does pursuing the law by faith mean? Well, as I said, it means to pursue it by Christ. It means to pursue it by the grace that he provides. How does one pursue the law by faith? How does one then pursue the law by Christ? How does one go from pursuing the law by work and effort to pursuing the law by faith, to pursuing Christ? And we've already seen, as he taught us in Romans chapter 9, God's electing call. The only, the only way and the only reason why someone can go from pursuing the law, the Mosaic law, some other moral law that they believe that if they can achieve it will get them a right standing with God, the only way someone jettisons that is by God opening up their eyes to see Christ, the standard of righteousness that God really demands, and then the gift of righteousness given to us by faith in Christ and by faith alone. So then the question, well, then should the Christian pursue the law by faith? Well, the answer to that question is, if you're in Christ, you already have. To pursue the law by faith is to embrace Christ. And the Christian, having already embraced Christ, then begins to pursue the law by faith, by Christ, by him keeping it, by him keeping that law, and then showering upon me all of his work and effort and merit to one who doesn't work or merit or do anything at all. And so then what does pursuing the law by faith for the Christian then look like? Well, we see this throughout especially Psalm 119. Your view of the law changes completely. How is it that David in Psalm 119 is able to say, in verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. How is he able to say in Psalm 119, verse 97, oh, how I love your law, and it is my meditation all the day. Because his understanding and his perspective and view of the law has completely changed as one who pursues the law by faith, by Christ. The law changes function. For the non-believer, the law is always the standard of perfection of which they can never achieve. It exposes their sin. It excites their sin. It identifies their sin. But for the believer, the law changes function. It, it, it changes how I pursue it. it. It doesn't change what God demands, but it points me to Christ and him meeting the demands on my behalf. And so in that way, I go, oh, I love your law. I love meditating upon the perfect requirements and demands of God on my behalf because then I'm immediately pointed to Christ and the one who has met them for me. I love meditating upon it. Because upon meditating upon it, I see Christ keeping it for me. I'm constantly pointed towards the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, beloved, that's a good thing. 
Secondly, the other reason why I love meditating upon the law of God is because it actually then gives me a a path forward into how I can live and, and what pleases him. I read the law of God, and he says, don't put any other God ab- above me. Don't make any God, you know, anything in God in, in, in your own image. Don't, don't kill. Don't steal. Don't, you know, those things. I look at that, and I go, that pleases you, Lord? In Christ, I, I, want, nothing, I want to do nothing more <laughs> than to please you. I want to meditate on what points me to Christ, what Christ has done, and then I want to meditate on the things that I do that, that please God when I do them. And then set my life to doing those things. And then, you know, then what happens is all of the one another commands that I see in Scripture come flooding in. And it's not as if, like, I'm just automatically, like, empowered to do those things. It's not as if it's, those things aren't hard to do. They're still hard. They're stif- still difficult to do. But, but who do I see when I fail to do them? Not me, not my failures. I see Christ, the one who never failed and the one who succeeded on my behalf and continues to succeed day in and day out. And it bolsters my grounds of assurance because when I'm not good and I'm disobedient and I'm unfaithful to the Lord, I'm not completely done away with. Those things may grieve me, sure, but my assurance isn't built on my goodness, my obedience, my faithfulness to him. It never was. My assurance is built and based upon the faithfulness, the goodness, and the obedience of Christ on my behalf. I can't, the believer should not be able to look anywhere. You shouldn't be able to look anywhere or go anywhere without seeing the Lord Jesus Christ mediating and interceding wonderfully, joyfully, and lovingly on your behalf. Constantly looking to him, pointing to him. I mean, this is partly Paul's own confession You see in Philippians chapter 3, a well-known passage of Scripture, but he says in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, right, before that he's talking about his his work, he's talking about his effort, right, I, I have had confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, i.e. their own good works, their own merit, their obedience, guess what? I have more. I'm better than you. I mean, that was Paul's mindset, his effort. Who, I mean, who, in, a, in a workspace system, you tell me, where, where's, the, where's the bar? Where's the line? How do we know who's good enough and who's not good enough? There's no way of knowing. Paul's own mindset. If you thought you were good, I was better. Did more tried harder, was more faithful than all y'all. Good luck. But, verse 7, whatever gain I had, oh, all of that work, all of that effort, all of that merit that I thought in my pursuit of the law was going to give me righteousness, how do I view it now? Count it as loss for the sake of Christ. 
Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Like this is, this is language of belief. This is language of faith. Indeed, I count everything, all of my effort, all of my years, all of my work, all of my trying. It's, it's trash. It's rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of one thing, knowing. Not doing, I just know him. Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Be found in him. Right, This is where he nails it. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. How do I get this righteousness? I got to have it. And and the knee-jerk response by every single human being is, you better get to work. And you better work really, really hard. Paul is like, after coming to know Christ, none of that mattered at all, anything. One thing that matters Knowing Christ, and in knowing him, I have righteousness. Complete, perfect, divine righteousness is mine in full. And along with that, all of the other things that we've seen in Romans, forgiveness, adoption, the dwelling of the Spirit, dead to sin, apart from the law, I mean, all, all of it in full, simply by faith and knowing him. Post-conversion, we look back upon the law and we see what God was doing in our lives through it. And then after coming to know Christ as well, we also see that it plays a different role in our life, constantly pointing us to Christ. It's not like after you come to know Christ, you're then good, and you then pursue a life of goodness on your own in your own power. You stay tethered to the one who, who worked it on your behalf to begin with, constantly needing him and depending upon him to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. But herein lies the issue. They did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. In their pursuit of the law to get righteousness, they stumbled over Christ. If you notice in verse 33, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Stone of stumbling is not a what, it's a who. It's him. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's his righteousness and him clothed in grace to give it 
to those who believe in him. The legalist on their path to righteousness is using the law to try and get this righteousness. And they come across this big stone in their path. And etched upon that stone is, by grace you have been saved through faith. They look at it and they say, I have no time for this. Who put this huge stone in my way? Doesn't, doesn't, don't people see I'm, 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 I'm busy over here? I'm trying, I got somewhere to be. I'm trying to get somewhere. This, this righteousness that I, that I want so badly, this stone that's in my way in the middle of my path has really become a big hindrance to me. By grace, you have been saved through faith. No thanks. Let me get upon my merry way and try and, and work and earn that righteousness. In Christ and in, in the grace that's offered in Christ, this gift given to us becomes a stone of stumbling. It's a rock of offense. The legalist, the one who pursues their own righteousness by works, is offended by the grace offered to them in Christ. <laughs> I'm not good enough? Okay, well, I'm certainly you know, good enough to be able to get righteousness on my own and to please God. No, thank you. Thank you very much. I'm going to continue on my way. I will do it my way. The gospel of grace is offensive to the legalist because it points, it, it's pointing the finger to them and saying, none of what y'all are doing matters. You can't get there. You never will. You will spin your wheels until you have driven yourself into the ground because righteousness comes by God's grace and by grace alone. Paul actually takes a passage, takes two passages, uh, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14, and Isaiah 28, verse 16, and he mashes them together. He's done this before. One of the biggest ones is, is what we've seen in Romans chapter 3, that long section about who, what sin is and our um, in, you know, being entrapped in, in our own sins, where he takes like, he takes a verse from here and from here and from here and from here, and he just mashes them all together to give us this like comprehensive look at what it is that he's teaching. And he does that here too in his quotation of Isaiah 8, 14 and 28, 16 in Romans 9, 33. Romans 8, 4, or excuse me, Isaiah 8, 14 the context is actually God is speaking to Isaiah. He says this in, in chapter 8, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me with, a, with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people. What were the people doing? Pursuing the law, righteousness by works. God is saying to Isaiah, don't go their way. Lord of But the Lord of hosts him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He's saying, Isaiah, don't go their way. Don't do what they're doing because a rock is coming, a, a, coming, a stone is coming. And it will, he will be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. 
And then he again quotes part of Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And even throughout the Old Testament, God was emphasizing the grace that was to be brought through the gospel in Christ and to show the, the inadequacy in trying to achieve righteousness by works. Telling them that a rock was coming. And we know that that rock is Christ. On one hand, we see, as we see in Romans 9.33, as Paul puts this together, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, Listen to the last verse, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. On one hand, what does the believer have? The assurance of never having to worry about being put to shame. All of your guilt, all of your faithlessness, everything that is shameful is completely wiped away in him. I tell you what, I've done a lot of shame. I've done a lot of things in my life I'm ashamed of. A lot. Still do them. Like, oh my goodness, what? I, oh, I hope no one ever hears about that, finds out about that. I'm so ashamed that I did that or said that. And it's such wonderful news when I read that passage, the promise of God being declared in, is that in him, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. I will never come under the eternal divine judgment of God on whether or not I am in Christ or out of Christ because it has already been determined and declared from before the beginning, before anyone had done anything good or evil that they would be in Christ and that he would declare that he is unashamed of them. You think about that. God is unashamed of you as you are in Christ. How wonderful is that? Isn't that good news? Like if you're at all in touch with the things that you are ashamed of and you know that he's not ashamed of you, oh, that is, that's, that's the best. It's such good news. Christ being for us, clothed in grace, not delivering us from all of our shame, all of our condemnation, all of our failures, because he has worked on our behalf. On the other hand, you see what it is that the one who pursues righteousness by works has, stumbling and offending in their pursuit of righteousness, they come to Christ in the free offer of the gospel of grace and they stumble over what it is that God provides and what he offers. And we'll see that even more so, Lord willing, next week when we get to chapter 10, verse 3, as they sought to even be ignorant of God's righteousness and sought to establish their own. Not only does Christ offend people, he sends them that the non-believer is sent on a way to, to establish their own righteousness. 
Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 1.23, this is why he would say this, we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. As I think about the passage, a couple things come into my mind in particular. You read through this and I see the grace that has been offered to me in the gospel, what, I, what it is that I do indeed have in Christ And yet, in what ways do I still struggle to view God in legalistic terms? I.e., his love for me is dependent upon how good of a little Christian boy I am in his sight. When I'm doing well and I'm living well, he's like, oh, bring it in, buddy. I love you so much. And when I'm faithless and, and not doing so well, he's like, just, just go to your room. I really can't deal with you right now. Fighting through the reality that that's, that that's just not how it works in God's sight. Actually, in our disobedience, what does he do? Does he move away from us? Oh no, he moves towards us. Read Psalm 32. David's confession of when I was in my sin and unconfessing it, what did the Lord do? His hand was heavy. He was pressing upon me. Why? To wound me. Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of the enemy. The enemy is just, mm, love you, love you, love you. You're so great. And they make much of you. The wound, the, but the Lord, out of his love for you, he moves towards you to wound you because he loves you to restore you and to bring Bring us near. God's love for us is not, it's consistent. It's based upon Christ and his work. When he declared it is finished, I was promised a a fountain of unending mercy and grace poured out to me in my life. Do you know what that does when 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 my view of God changes like that? Do you think at all that changes the way that I parent? Oh, absolutely. Kids are doing well. Bring it in, kids. Let's go get ice cream. Kids are disobedient. Go to your room. This this permeates the Christian life. Your view of God is radically going to inform the way that you live your life and treat other people. And grace, being filled with the grace of God doesn't mean that you just then, like, there's no rules, you don't care, we don't care about holiness or honoring the Lord or being obedient to him. No, we care about that stuff. But it's grace, it's understanding that helps me move towards them, not not in a harsh, judgmental, critical spirit of saying, shame on you, you should know better than that. You've been a Christian for how many years and you're still doing that? What's wrong with you? To move towards them and go, dude, I get it. I understand. Let's go to the Father together. Let me show you how, remind you of how good and kind and compassionate he is. You can accomplish the same thing, but with completely two different um, expressions because of two different motivations. The legalist cannot 
cannot approach someone with grace. They really struggle to because they see God as constantly critical, evaluating, keeping notes, fail, 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 rather than seeing God as their loving Father who has washed them clean and loves them because of the work of the Son. Completely different worldviews, completely different ways of, of seeing God and in seeing other people. So in what ways do I graciously learn to come alongside other people rather than with a legalistic and critical spirit? How much of my life is really measured by the God of grace who has given me life and forgiveness and mercy, understanding and patience, and therefore that's the way that I am with other people? Pursuit of righteousness by works is to reject Christ, to pursue righteousness by faith is to embrace Christ. That is reason for rejoicing and resting in him and and then also the proclamation of inviting others to come to him and receive what it is that has been given to us. But it's really hard to give to others what you don't either have or you're not mindful of yourself. And this is the reason why we have communion as we approach the time, our time for partaking of the table together. This is a fresh reminder, at least it should be. As I said last week, this is, this is a time of, of, of celebration. This is really a time of worship and a time of rejoicing as I see Christ clothed in the gospel of grace working for me on my behalf and seeing that it's already finished. And so then all of the promises that are in the Bible are mine and yours if you are indeed in Christ. That's the reason why we do this. We need, I mean, a a regular reminder of what it is that Christ has done and who he is for us. That's why we partake of communion. So if you're here today and you know Christ by faith and by faith alone and you're visiting, we we would welcome you to join with us and partake of this communion time that we have together. But if you're here visiting and you don't know Christ and you are still pursuing goodness, favor by God, righteousness by some of your own effort or work, then please do not partake, but to consider the, the emptiness, the bankruptcy in living this way. It is, you, you, it, it's not happening. It can't happen. It won't happen. Only by faith and by faith alone Will you be granted admission into the kingdom of God and receive the grace of God and his righteousness for you? So the elements are on the table. Table's behind you. You can get those and return back to your seat for a time of prayer, celebration, and we'll partake of this communion time together shortly.